Welcome to A Need to Read. My name's Ed and I'm the host of the show. And I've got a conversation for you today with Alan Flanagan, who holds a master's and a PhD in nutrition from the University of Surrey. And he actually used to be a barrister as well. He is on Instagram as The Nutritional Advocate, and that's where I came across him. I started reading his 3M Thoughts Substack newsletter, where he kind of comments on culture, and I just liked the way he thought, so I thought I'd bring him on the show for a chat. So we chat for a little bit about nutrition, and then we pivot over to the current political landscape in the UK, as well as a bit of philosophy as well. So a varied conversation, super informative, I learned a lot, and hopefully you'll enjoy it too. If you do enjoy it, please feel free to leave a review, slash feel free, slash feel pressured to leave a review uh, from me. That would be really cool of you. Or you can share the episode with a friend or check out the sponsors in the description. My podcast is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp and they provide therapy to people through telephone, video or online chat. You can't move two metres nowadays without someone talking about mental health. And I think that's pretty cool because people are finally opening up and that's what we need to see because take it from me someone who put off therapy for years and years and years five to be exact chatting through your problems with a therapist is one of the most positive things you can do for your general mindset towards your mental health and providing you with tools and formulas of how to manage it when things inevitably get rough at some point in life. So should you be thinking about therapy, and let me tell you, I think it's quite a good idea if you do, you can get 10% off as an A Need to Read listener, which is pretty cool. So all you'd have to do is head to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read, fill out a questionnaire that shouldn't take you long. It's not a test, it's just a questionnaire to match you with a therapist that suits your needs. Once that's sorted, it takes about 48 hours to get you matched with that therapist. And then you're on your bike and you're heading towards just having a better mind that treats you a bit better, right? It's kind of simple, but it's very effective. Alan, welcome to A Need to Read. It's a pleasure to have you on. I've really been enjoying reading what you write mostly on Instagram and seeing you just pull apart quacks in the nutritional space. So it's good to have you here. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for inviting me, Ed. Yeah, it's, uh, it's good to, well, it's not good to have to deal with quacks, but I do like having conversations with people that are more interesting than that. So for people listening, just summarize your career and how you got to where you are briefly, if you would. Yeah, so I um, am not a typical uh, route into science. Um, I didn't even do science for, well, the Irish equivalent of GCSEs. Um, and I hated maths and all that kind of stuff. So I was a humanities kid. Um, I did history and English for my undergrad. Uh, and then I went to law school in Dublin, um, specifically, uh, aiming to get called to the bar, um, called to the bar then in October, 2009 in Dublin and spent the guts of 10 years practicing as a barrister in Dublin, which I really enjoyed. Um, but I did have this, this interest in kind of nutrition and health that was always there in the background. And I found myself possibly the, the kind of the lawyer in me trying to look for evidence, (laughs) um, found myself reading research on kind of open access databases like PubMed in a very, very crude context. I mean, I was really reading the discussion part of a paper and, 
I didn't have any scientific literacy. I certainly didn't understand anything about statistics or anything like that. Um, but I did want to kind of get better at this um, and basically just started down the path of a formal education. Um, and eventually through uh, a friend, I was pointed to the University of Surrey, which ran a, a modular master's largely aimed at, at, at kind of working professionals. So it, it fit. Um, it meant that I could do it while I was working away in law. And I had an interest in the kind of health policy, regulation, that kind of side. And I, I had no inkling, certainly when I started the master's, that I would eventually end up leaving law. What I saw is that the qualification, the MSc would, would maybe allow me to actually start moving more into that kind of space in a legal context, mm. in a practice sense. Um, and there's a huge gulf and void there in the legal world in terms of like health regulation and policy. Mm. Um, but anyway, long story short, I got towards the end of the MSc. I was really enjoying doing research and... I did have some questions about whether I wanted to stay in law over the long term. And when the opportunity to do a PhD came up full time, I kind of jumped at that um, in the knowledge that if I wanted to just do the, the three years of the PhD and go back to law, then I could. Hmm. So there was this kind of get out of jail clause in the back of my mind that was there if I wanted it. Um, and ultimately, I didn't end up wanting it. I, I really took to research um, and science in a way that I was quite surprised at during the master's. And that really just developed then over the course of the PhD. So now I'm pot committed fully into, uh, into nutrition. Um, so I have the kind of obviously the research side. I finished my PhD and I'm just looking for the next phase of research now. And then there's also the kind of public facing work that I would do with my own education platform and then Sigma Nutrition as well, where we produce the the podcast and some other educational resources. Yeah, nice. I saw earlier on Instagram that your advice to someone studying, going to study nutrition would be don't. <laughs> well, well, why? <laughs> I, I think people... And look, I, I get where this comes from because this is how I, I found my way to it. But it, it, it's a subject that touches everyone's life, whether they have any interest in it or not. Everyone eats um, and everyone has to eat in order to survive as a human being. You know, food, shelter, water are probably those kind of three essentials that are needed, the very bottom of the hierarchy of needs. So even if someone never pays a moment of thought to what they actually put in their mouth, it's still influencing their health, whether they like it or not. So I think you have this mass interest in nutrition that you don't get with other subjects. You're not exposed to, you, you don't get this with physics, right? You don't, you've got David Robert Grimes on recently, right? You know, yeah. you, don't get, you don't get that with his, no one's like, Sliding into his DMs, telling him the the the, the algorithms he's got you know, written up yeah, yeah. are wrong, because you can't even begin to speculate on that. So nutrition as a subject is in a really odd place where everybody engages in it, and we also then in the kind of wider conversation and I guess the social media side of things, 
we have the people engaging with it are typically people who are from backgrounds of means. Um, they're the kind of health conscious, worried well. Um, and it is, I mean, you know, even going back to uh, like some of, you know, in um, the road to Wigan Pier, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's you know, the, the, there's this line about um, like uh, diet being, I, I can't, I can't remember. Tea and toast is what I got from Road to Wigan Pier. There <laughs> was a line. Tea and toast, and I don't want to work in a mine. He, he had a line in it about basically diet being harder to change than religion. No. Um, and, and, and so that's, you know, it's, 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 it's a long-standing thing that there is an intimate connection between what people kind of put in their mouths, basically, and the, the foods that they eat. We know it's influenced by religion, culture, region, and all of this kind of stuff. So in many respects, diet, the, the foods, the sum total of foods people choose to eat becomes a belief system um, and in the in the modern context, that's playing out in ways that are relatively absurd to me anyway. And unless you're really going to want to practice as a dietitian in a clinical context or as a nutritionist working with people in the public, I don't know why you would study it. Like I gave a I gave a talk at a conference in Dublin a few weeks ago, which was to current postgraduates. You know, and the kind of theme of the thought talk was like PhD journey, what you might learn from it and this kind of stuff. And, you know, I opened jokingly, but also not by saying, you know, here I am, I have like my fourth degree, one MSc in nutrition, a PhD in nutrition, very science and evidence-based focused. I do all of this public communication work as far as science-based nutrition. Uh, and yet I play chess with pigeons on the internet. Like that's what I do with my PhD. I have whole sections of people who will engage, who think that some dude who read a couple of books and has his own little ideas is more credible than me. And you can't win with that. You, 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 there's no, there's no room to maneuver. So I just don't think, un, like I said, unless someone had a very specific career in mind as a practitioner, I don't know why you'd study nutrition, uh, because it's certainly not required. If you want to go out there and build a following of a million people and have a supplement line and make millions, you do not need, I would say an education would hurt your chances of doing that based on type of based on the type of the kind of archetype of a person who does well in that space is prized for their lack of education they're celebrated for their contrarianism they're celebrated for being outside the system i got into an argument a while ago with someone on another on a friend of mine's post and it was to do with like seed oils, basically, you know, vegetable okay. oil. And they made this absurd comment about how anyone advising that these foods are okay for human consumption is an idiot. And it was kind of like, <laughs> hang on a minute. So, and then, you know, that they're, they're yeah, of course, in their title, in their bio, it was like biohacker, you know, okay. like, 
I can, I can, I can, I know who this person is already, you know, yeah. any bunch of, of, you know, stereotypes, but their whole approach to kind of interacting with me when I was asking for evidence was to denigrate the fact that I had a PhD and say, oh, well, of course, you know, you've wasted all this money. Good, yeah, enjoy being in debt because, you know, it's taught you nothing and you, you clearly can't think for yourself <laughs> and you have been brainwashed by the system. You can't, you can't. Got you there. Yeah, there and there. I can't think for myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny uh, because that's there's the the thoughts will be coming from someone who probably gets their news from like Russell Brand or right, someone right. like that. Yeah, yeah, Joe Rogan, you know, and, and they fully conceive of themselves as independent thinkers, uh, which is hilarious because they end up with the same kind of half baked opinions on it on on any range of topics that thousands of other contrarian conspiracy theorists have managed to come up with. So, yeah, I, um, I ran into a similar issue. And I, I think when I first started this podcast, I think I was relatively popular or, or got to a point that a lot of podcasters don't because I was stupid. And I feel quite a lot of shame about that because I like I, I was reading books like Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway and all of these really basic, simple phrases that your mum's probably told you and should have just listened to her back then. But some that Mark Manson. No, that's not Mark Manson, but the cell art not it's like Mark Manson. <laughs> it's yeah, it's yeah. it's an old dead woman version of uh, Mark Manson. Okay. And people love that shit. People mm -hmm. love the simplif simplified version of something quite complex that mm -hmm. just misses the mark quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's a real shame because when now that I've read a lot more, I'm like, oh, shit. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm, I'm right in the valley of despair um, on, on the Dunning-Kruger. Dunning -Kruger. I'm, I'm right in the middle. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's uncomfortable because you, like, you kind of realize I could have been more successful, as it were, by just being stupid. Yeah, and that shouldn't be how it goes, right? <laughs> yeah, it's 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 an indictment on a range of aspects of our culture. I think, mm -hmm. in many respects, um, I think it's an indictment of the influence of social media on our capacity to think and critique. I think it's an indictment as well on our education systems, particularly higher education, where it's really just become about the outcome. No one's really interested in going to study in university to learn. They're interested in, I need this degree for then I'm going to do this or whatever. It's just a stepping stone on a way to something else. And... I, I think that's a, a, a big part of this problem. So we're churning people out of institutions of supposedly higher education that, that cannot think, uh, cannot critique, cannot. And if you look at, you know, some of the work of Jonathan Heist, the psychologist in the States, I mean, and he's been, he can, he'll really trace a time point where a lot of this started to, to kind of go downhill. And some of his research is quite interesting because he talks about, he pinpoints kind of 20, 2011, 2011 is when you could start to get a, get a bit of a signal in the, in the, in the noise mm. that something different was going on in universities. 2014 is where you really could pinpoint things, things have gone south. 
And he's identified a number of factors that he thinks may be contributing to this. And, and one of which is that that would have been the first generation that properly grew up with a, a fully digital life and childhood. Mm -hmm. And what it meant was that, uh, and he, he kind of marries it to statistics in terms of the decline in participation in outdoor, not just sports, but just activities generally. Yeah. Um, increasing safety concerns that parents have, meaning that there was a lot of kind of cotton wooling and, and, and insulation of children from the world. So they didn't learn basic skill. Like, you know, you go out and you play a game of football when you're, when you're eight, right. And there's a foul and it's contested and you argue over whether it's a foul or not. Right. And of yeah. course to anyone watching, that's just an argument amongst eight-year-olds, but it's actually them learning to deal with confrontation, to deal with conflict, to resolve it. And with the internet aspect of this, he basically says that this was the first generation that was able to grow up totally incubated against any other worldviews. Yeah. Anyone that disagrees. So you just found your little group online that agreed with everything you said. And so the first time that they ever encountered another point of view, was when they were 18 or 19 going to college in, in any material sense. And that you just, you, they had this total in lack of skill set, cognitively and otherwise, to actually deal with it. And so this is where you start seeing this real decline in, you know, kind of the, the, the kind of raucousness of campus life. You know, you can't debate topics anymore. Speakers are deplatformed if they have a point of view that a certain section of the student body disagree with, you know, th th there's this demand for kind of safe spaces and, and, and all of this, um, and with, and without, you know, making it too much kind of fodder for the culture war, there is really something there that needs to be paid attention to as far as people's just basic inability to encounter different perspectives. Um, so I, I think all of that feeds into this culture that we have where I, I, it's also occurred with a kind of a rise, probably mostly observed in politics, mm -hmm. of a very dominant strain of anti-intellectualism. So again, it goes back to that idea that we we don't prize education anymore. We don't we denigrate and sneer at intelligence. Um, we elect buffoons in both in the UK and in the US and in other countries. Uh, to 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 be kind of smart is almost to be seen as part of the quote elites that opaque term that mm -hmm. just gets thrown around in the populist press, and and I think all of these factors that anti intellectualism that inability for people to entertain different perspectives, the online world of just totally incubating yourself against uh, anything that is not your worldview, all just converge to create a culture that's almost impossible to navigate, I think, where we end up celebrating ignorance <laughs> um, and we end up downgrading expertise and intelligence. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a shame. I feel a bit sad after the end of that speech. Yeah. <laughs> it's the way well, things are going. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> before, before we get into your world, I do just, because it, Nutrition is not the only reason I've, I've brought you on here, but there is one thing I'd like cleared up nutritionally. And then I'd like to go back to me feeling sure. sad about what you've just said. Right. Um, 
And that is because I've spent a lot of time uh, interviewing people about the climate recently. I've spoken to a guy from UCL, um, spoken to George Monbiot, the guy who writes for The Guardian. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, all signs kind of lead to veganism is, is best for the planet. Now, I'm not too sure whether or not we're going to have a planet to be that mm-hmm. one about. I'm kind of nihilistic in that sense. Mm-hmm. But should someone decide to go plant-based, what kind of quackery should they look out for in that space? Because I've I've seen you say before that it is full of it, and that's no surprise. Like, yeah, I th- I think the yeah quackery seems kind of synonymous with areas of veganism and the yeah. type of activities that they might want to participate in. Not mm. all vegans with a hashtag, you know. But... I, I, not all vegans. <laughs> no, it's. I think. I think part of the problem is that with veganism itself you can have different motivations that are purely environmental or moral and ethical um or a mix in some people when it comes to the mm, environmental crowd the, the people who approach this from an environmental consideration they're typically a lot more reasonable you can have a conversation with them. You cannot have a conversation with generally with with ethical moral vegans, um, largely because, again, coming back to this religiosity of diet, it's it, it's akin to trying to have a conversation about abortion with a Christian evangelical. You're just if their position is that there, it is entirely morally wrong, where, where do you go mm. from there? Where do you go from there? If the consumption of any animal produce whatsoever, and generally the standard that they kind of apply is this idea of sentience, any sentient being with harm inflicted upon it is wrong in, in any circumstance, and that our duty as human beings is the maximal reduction of harm two sentient beings, you, you, can't, you can't go anywhere with that conversation because anything less than 100% is a moral failing in their view. So this is why I don't talk about my diet generally, although I did recently, and this is exactly what happened afterwards. So um, it was a reinforcing of why I don't debt. But I, I, think what I, would, I think what I would say is the term plant-based is not synonymous necessarily with vegan. Uh, vegan is implying a very specific philosophy and lifestyle. It's the, the, the very prudent ethical vegans that I know would even push back on considering vegan a diet because they will see people who say I'm vegan and are walking around with a leather handbag. And to them, that is entirely inconsistent with veganism as a philosophy and lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, plant-based, I think, is a more neutral term generally, but it's not necessarily implying plant-exclusive. There's a range of plant-based that can involve various iterations of vegetarianism. Heck, you could even consume a meat-inclusive diet, and it could be plant-based insofar as the bulk of your daily volume in food and nutrients are derived from plants. Mm. Um, and someone consumes modest amounts of meat on top of that. So it's, it's, it's a slightly 
less contentious term. Is it absolutely necessary to adopt a vegan diet for the environment? Uh, not necessarily. No. Um, because there are multiple ways in which an individual's footprint, footprint can be reduced. Is it a good idea to consider the biggest contributors to our footprint as it relates to diet? Absolutely. I think that there is no doubt in the data that it's a good idea for us to reduce meat consumption. That doesn't necessarily mean for someone that really enjoys the odd ribeye that they have to eliminate it entirely. Yeah. But, but, but substantial reductions in the foods that contribute the most to greenhouse gas emissions, to land use and other resource use, I think is a good idea. And I think to consider it from this environmental perspective, to me, disarms some of the more fraught ethical and moral considerations and allows us to have a bit of a more meaningful conversation about how someone might change their diet in order to actually benefit the overall need. Now, would a vegan diet overall, by virtue of what it excludes, be the most maximal approach to reducing a footprint related to dietary choices? Yes. But is it necessarily required in, in its entirety? Not really. I don't think anyway, like something like farmed fish, for example, is, is not particularly, it doesn't require a lot of land use. It's not resource intensive relative to the production of other foods. Um, and, you know, for the benefits that we see nutritionally associated with fish intake, it's really like two servings a week. So yeah, it's not like it's daily consumption. So it's the same with, it's the same with dairy, for example. So there was an environmental report a few years ago that suggested that, yeah, sure, if you're drinking like a gallon of milk a day, that's really not going to, that's going to be leaving a lot of a footprint. But on average, about 250 grams a day seems to be okay within environmental thresholds. So uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's ways that people can reduce their footprint um, by adopting a more plant-based diet without necessarily having to make it exclusive of all animal produce in its entirety for eternity. Um, and I think that that is a conversation then that people are more receptive to listening to than when vegan crazies start going mad. And the, the level, it's the level of fear-mongering that they're willing to justify because to them, the ends of someone adopting a vegan diet justifies the means and so you've got documentary. I, I, I wouldn't watch, if someone was even thinking about this stuff, I wouldn't watch a single documentary that's available on these topics. Game changers, cowspiracy, seaspiracy, any other spiracy. Just don't watch any of them because you're going to be misinformed. You know, if they're talking about milk containing pus and antibiotics, like just, these are all red flags and amber lights. I think we can have an honest conversation about the health effects of any food, irrespective of its plant or animal origin, without having to resort to those kind of tactics. So if, if someone's purporting to use that kind of scaremongering rhetoric, that would be a real red flag for me. Okay. And would there be health implications from going from, I know everyone's diet is different, so it'd be hard to generalize, but let's say you cut out meat and fish and, and animal products, what would then your 
body be missing? Well, it depends on the replacements in the diet. So a misconception, you know, I think that I see a lot of with nutrition is, you know, that it's almost like the label of the diet denotes its health effects. So people say, well, I'm vegetarian or I'm vegan. Okay. But it's, it's entirely possible with our current food supply to eat a diet that would be vegan junk. It's entirely possible to eat a vegan diet that's shite in its macronutrient composition and otherwise. And the same with various iterations of vegetarian. So, you know, if, if the net effect of someone deciding, right, I'm going to stop eating and buying red meat in the supermarket, right? If the net change there is that in lieu of that, they just start eating some, you know, high salt, saturated fat, vegetarian ready meals, then that's probably not ideal. Mm-hmm. If they replaced that, meat, for example, with lentils or chickpeas or these kind of foods, then yes, there would be a health gain from that. So with nutrition, it's very much if something's being lowered in the diet or eliminated in the diet, what foods and nutrients are replacing that? And that's going to influence health outcomes ultimately. So it really is dependent. Um, And there are better alternatives now, like corn mince, for example, nutritionally is really good. Um, so it depends, but a lot of these products are new to market as well. And they have the halo effect of being for consumers, this idea that, oh, it's vegan, it must be healthy. And so that halo effect can lead them to buy products that actually, if you were to look at them, they're often very high in salt, often very high in saturated fat. So, um, it, it really does, it really does depend. But if someone's eating more non-starchy vegetables, increasing their fruit intake, eating more legumes and fiber and whole grains, like that, that's all going to contribute to a health gain. Yeah. Okay. And then just to, in terms of protein consumption then, because there, there, there would be a hit and that seems to be what people are obsessed with. People like to be muscly. That seems to be very important to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and protein is uh, apparently the one that you need for muscles. So do you need as much protein as people say? It depends on the activity, really. Um, yes, there is. We do have evidence that people consuming vegetarian or vegan diets will habitually often end up with a lower dietary protein intake. And the RDA for protein is probably going to need a revision at some point. Um, it's based off some kind of older metrics of calculation that may not actually work, particularly for elderly populations who might actually need higher intakes for preservation, mm-hmm. muscle mass and bone strengths and all of that. Um, but for, for dietary protein requirements, it really depends on the kinds of activity that an individual engages in. So if they are relatively sedentary or, or don't really do any sort of specific type of physical activity or exercise, then that range of, you know, 0.8 to to one gram per kilo of body weight is sufficient. And again, that's pretty easy to get on even a plant exclusive diet, although it can be easier to fall short of that on a plant exclusive diet, not paying attention to food choices. For endurance athletes, a little bit more is required on average 
about 1.4 grams, 1.2 to 1.4 grams could be good for endurance athletes. And then for kind of strength and power athletes, for people who engage in either resistance training, like a CrossFit or a sport like rugby or rowing even, give or take around 1.6 grams per kilos of body weight is more ideal in that context. And that can be a little more difficult to get to in a plant-exclusive diet. So it can be useful to, in that context, for someone that is following that kind of diet, still eating all of the kind of, you know, they're getting tofu, soy milk, you know, lentils, these kind of higher protein plant-based foods, but it can still uh, be useful to use a plant-based protein powder on top of that because a lot of plant sources of protein are also quite filling. So it's it's not necessarily ideal to be going training, like feeling like you're you know, stomach is full and you can't really move. So yeah, for, for strength and power athletes, I think it's not necessarily always a bad idea to just kind of have a decent plant-based protein handy, which can help meet those thresholds on a day-to-day basis. Okay. Nice. You cleared that up for me. Thank you very much, Alan. Just to quickly interrupt the proceedings here, I need to ask for your help. There are many ways in which you can help me. And the reason I want your help is because I'm an independent creator, which means everything I do with this podcast comes at a cost to me there is no company supporting this it is solely me and you know what at times that's quite scary so if you can spare a coffee please do so by heading to buymeacoffee.com forward slash a need to read where you can make a one-off donation to support the work that i do and if that's not feasible for you you can write a review for the podcast share the podcast with a friend and then again if that's too much to ask Just come back next week. I'm looking forward to having you back. Thanks for taking the time to listen. I think I'd like to uh, go back to where we said we were sad. We were talking about society. um, You're a nihilist, right? Yeah, I try try, try to move more to existential. Nihilist by default, existentialist, because if I'm too nihilistic, then I can't function. Okay. I I would agree with you there. It's every time I get too nihilist, my life becomes considerably more difficult. And mm-hmm. um, just in terms of getting up and going about my day without thinking what the fuck is going on. Yeah. Um and and that's tough. How how did you come to have an interest in philosophy? Was that is that your I suppose mm-hmm. humanities background, history kind of pushed yeah, towards it? it? I don't really have that. My my kind of purest interests are history and 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 kind of and literature really mm-hmm. and um, that's that's where I I tee off that's where all of my I still do a lot of writing completely separately to my nutrition life yeah. um, I have like a Substack which is has nothing to do with nutrition on it yeah, I like that hmm? I like that three AM thoughts yeah three AM yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah thanks real. <laughs> so most of my focus there is kind of like geopolitical stuff and, and 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 that's my but i guess from trying to kind of understand a little bit more about my own psyche i have found some of these philosophical constructs quite helpful um so it's kind of led me there but i definitely would not be well read on philosophy and you know have have kind of very refined um thoughts on the various kind of competing i've 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 grasped with it 
in a, in a level sufficient to kind of understand my own default settings a little bit more. Um, but my, but my interest generally from a kind of humanities perspective is very much more in the, in the kind of history, political, um, and kind of literature. Um, um but yeah, I, I, I kind of stumbled across nihilism, um, as a concept, um, more so again kind of via i did a lot of uh, one of my kind of main uh literary periods of interest is like the romantic the romanticists period of writers and there's a lot, a lot of nihilism in romanticism you know it's yeah. like dark and nighttime and like you know um but it's 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 contrasted with this real kind of with I guess the, the romantic sublime, you know, this kind of wonder and awe at nature and, and it's sublime kind of beauty and all of this. So I was kind of like, oh, this kind of, this kind of speaks to me in a way. What's, what's, what's this about? So I kind of dug into that and, you know, kind of recognized a lot of my default settings in, in nihilism. But then I was like, well, I, I can't just, I can't just default to this and let the only thing that is a compass for me to operate um because i will just not like i said not be able to function right yeah um, so 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 then looking at a little bit into nihilism kind of led me to then existentialism which for me then is slightly more okay i can still accept that that the, the world is a bit fucked right? yeah well then it's all you know um but while here with nihilism, it kind of only ends up leading. I don't know that there's much utility to nihilism is my point, right. because you just end up with this despairing lack of any sort of kind of hope or, or, or meaning or purpose. And I think meaning and purpose are a little kind of overdone in our culture where we have this kind of really self-obsessed culture as coaches meaning coaches yeah yeah i i think i think it says a lot about our culture i've been thinking about this recently as well but i i you know i do think that it is important to be able to try and carve out while we're here and we're not here for a particularly long time some framework that allows us to kind of engage with ourselves while and, and the world while we're here and so for me kind of existentialism is slightly more useful in that context because you know we have this obviously experience of kind of thinking but we can we can work to create some sort of purpose for our own lives and some and derive some sort of meaning while we're here and that to me at least just as as an idea to strive towards is of much more utility than nihilism um mm-hmm. in in that context um and then yeah and then <laughs> then existentialism led me to kind of absurdism which i was just like oh this also is quite helpful because <laughs> because i i, I it, it does it, it does provide again an explanation for some of my default views of the world where i don't see a world of kind of order and i see a world of kind of randomness and and chaos generally and absurdism provides a kind of nice wingman to existentialism for allowing me to kind of laugh at the horror as i say yeah um, you know and 
and and and just you know uh, yeah i'm going back <laughs> then it's all right like absurdism just adds a bit of fun into it doesn't it it's actually exactly you know as a, as a sprinkle of fun it's like just sprinkle of fun. oh god it's mental but i don't care really yeah, you're <laughs> just looking at this this is absurd this is yeah absurd. this is a giant cu- i find i mean i love uh, like some of albert camus's writing um on that absurdist kind of lens i also find alan watts quite similar with i don't know that he was an absurdist at all i don't think so yeah but, yeah, but the man of death wasn't he yeah, it was. It was. I mean, he was very much, you know, the, the Eastern philosophies were his were his discipline of 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 kind of philosophical study. But again, he reiterates that idea of this is just one big joke of a of a play, basically. You know, yeah, the play that's going on, and we're watching this spectacle, and and it's all just it's all just a joke, and and I that it's it disarms the despairing component of nihilism for me in in a way that is um very relieving yeah for sure i think i I got into existentialism early part of this year and there are certainly some like interesting characters that you can look at that like span off of that like i don't know soren kierkegaard he's a peculiar chap from uh denmark uh, he was, I think he was, they tout him as one of the fathers of existentialism. Um, I think in the book was The Existentialist Cafe by Sarah Bakewell. Okay, I'll have a look. Yeah, it's really, really, really good. It gives you an intro, Sartre, um, Simone de Beauvoir, Albert Camus in there, Kierkegaard. It's a really, really interesting book. And she's done one on, I think, Michelle de Montaigne as well. But I think 400 pages just on one person was a bit too much for me. Um, yeah. So pol- politics is and history is is where your your interests lay then um and and still do even though i find myself in science and i do really love where i'm at with that my 3 a.m thoughts is is my outlet that's my creative outlet like that's what i get most you know that that idea of where do you find kind of meaning and purpose i just really love to write and i don't really care whether anyone reads it i kind of do it to make sense of what I'm seeing in the world and my own thoughts on what I'm seeing. And it always kind of tends to take that focus. Uh, but I, I, I really value being able to kind of retain that part of my life um, from my kind of undergrad days alive in some way, shape or form. Yeah. And the world's not short of inspiration for you to try and work. <laughs> <Wow. up. laughs> I've had writer's block, writer's block. I haven't been bothered to write basically for, um, it must be coming up two and a half, three months. Like one of the the last thing I wrote was about Roe versus Wade. That's when I was like, okay, I'm going to start writing on current topics and then couldn't do anymore. Haven't been able to bring myself down. So I think your, your approach to it as an outlet, doesn't matter if anyone reads it, it's kind of something I need to step back into. I think so. It depends on on the on the on the motivation, but I think one of the barriers to writing is if we kind of assume we're writing it for for someone or for an audience, and that's crippling. Then because we're like, Jesus, this is shit. <laughs> you know, because we'll always assume that what we write is shit. So, so that 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 then cripples the ability to just sit down and get the thoughts out. Um, and and three AM thought started because I was doing these I was doing this writing anyway, 
Um, and I would sometimes share them on my stories. And I would say, I would have people send me a message saying, oh, like, are these anywhere permanent? And I'd be like, no. And then a, a good friend of mine, you know, just really kind of encouraged me to, to, she was just like, well, if you're going to write it anyway, and if you're going to share it intermittently, as you feel like the odd one on social media, why not just put it in a permanent place? So that's, that's when I kind of, I set up the Substack, and, uh, I think, I think the, the process of it is greatly aided by always just saying, I just want to get my own thoughts straight. I don't yeah. care if anyone reads this or not. I'm not writing it for other people. I'm just writing it to get my own head straight. <laughs> yeah. And it takes the pressure off. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to have to. Maybe I'll think about that for another two months and, and see how I get on. <laughs> um, so when it comes to the 3M thoughts, so there was one recently about how the Tories are cutting themselves. Oh, that was such so, a dark analogy. Yeah, they're slowly cutting themselves to see if they bleed. And mm-hmm. now we're here. We got Rishi Sunak, just to, for people listening, this the day after Rishi Sunak or the day of Rishi Sunak being announced as the new Prime Minister of the UK. Yeah. Um, this is what the seventh Tory prime minister we've had in there. I think it's the fifth and sixth year. Fifth and six years. Yeah. So that's, that's awful. How they fucked this up. Uh, And I'm not saying that I had any high hopes for them. Yeah. At any point from what I'd learned to think. I, I can understand why people voted for them in 2019. You know, even with, with, with 2010, you know, British politics is, for all of the virtue of a parliamentary democracy and parliamentary monarchy, and I think that there's, I think within the concept of, and all of the divisiveness that a monarch or retaining a monarchy holds, there's, there's one benefit insofar as you have a head of state that is apolitical. Um, but the problem with the system of first past the post means that in effect, Britain has largely been a one party state for the guts of a century or more. And you have these intermittent periods where labor has, has won and has won an election, but Labour really hasn't ever won an election on its merits, save for the Tony Blair years yeah the other periods particularly in the 70s when labor was in power was because the tories lost the election and then by default labor then yeah. um and i think that that distinction's not semantic it's quite important it's likely going to be what what happens in the next yeah. general election but labor are going to win it on their merits i think how we got here ultimately requires a lineage of 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 tracing back to the the kind of the end of the 70s and 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 the rise of Thatcher to power and i, I wrote another 3am thoughts kind of on that a few year uh, a few weeks ago back in september um and basically that that rise you also saw that shift occur in the states at the same time. So you had the oil crisis, you had stagflation, you had these various converging factors where there was a huge shift in the distribution of, of power to, to labor. 
Mm-hmm. And you had the emergence of schools of economic thought through the 60s and 70s that were going beyond just the basic concept of a open or freer market and free trade that was still a part of the post-Second World War economies. But in the post-Second World War period, you had a commitment to an understanding that if you let the population get so destitute and despairing that you allowed for the rise of really unsavory political and social ideologies. And that that's what had occurred with communism and it's certainly what occurred with the rise of fascism. So the, mm. so the post-war period saw this broad commitment, even in America, to a kind of version of welfare democracy where, yes, it was still going to be capitalist, free trade market-based economies, but there was going to be a commitment that no citizens would fall below a minimum standard of, of living yeah. to, to make sure that these ideologies didn't set in. And what you had was you had a political spectrum defined by a kind of center-left and center-right, and they held each other in tension around this kind of centrist sphere with the center-right more kind of focused on wanting slightly more economic freedom and and a slower pace of social change, and the center-left wanting greater economic benefit for people in the population and also championing social change. But it, they held each other in tension and it worked. You got this progressive evolution over time uh, of increasing uh, rights amongst various groups in, in the population. And you also had a relatively stable period of economic development up until these various crises in the 70s. And those crises provided the springboard for these kind of economic theories, essentially of almost 17th century and 18th century laissez-faire capitalism dressed up in, in modern rhetoric to kind of be unleashed along with a, a, a completely deregulated um, you know, model. And that's, that's what emerged in the States. That's what Reaganism and Reaganomics was triumphing. Yeah. And that's what, that's what Thatcherism was, was triumphing as well. Yeah. But there were, there were a number of components to this that um, were, 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 were really important to kind of understand because this kind of what we could broadly term the neoliberal model wasn't simply about economics. Yeah. It was really a, a social experiment as well. It was about replacing the idea of society with the market. Yeah. So individual freedoms, which had typically been expressed as the freedom to, and when we express freedom as freedom to, that's a freedom to engage with society, to accept responsibilities that are reciprocal between citizens. And what gets overlooked with, with neoliberalism isn't just that it was an economic philosophy of total deregulation and financialization, but it was a social philosophy of, of, of hyper-individualism that changed the meaning of freedom from a freedom to, to freedom from. And this is freedom from responsibility and obligations to other citizens. It was also in the economic philosophy, a freedom 
of corporations from responsibility to employees or to society. Yeah. Um, and Milton Friedman famously published a paper where he basically said that companies had no obligations except to their shareholders. And so it gave birth to the most feral form of capitalism that existed probably since the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was obviously embraced by, by, the, by the Tories here. It became their guiding philosophy. Uh, you know, and the 80s in Britain is, is, is defined by the brutal suppression of labor, the offshoring of industries, um, the financialization of, of, of the actual economy, which centered then everything around the city and London, the decimation of communities in the peripheries. And then when you leap forward then to after the labor years, we've got the global financial crash in 2008 which should have, in any other circumstances, cemented the death of the neoliberal model. And instead, it cemented the neoliberal model through the birth of what some commentators would term authoritarian neoliberalism. And this is where right-of-center governments like the conservative 2010 Cameron government came to power and basically imposed the most brutal, punitive policies on working people and on low-income families rather than on the people that had actually got the, the, the nation into the mess and yeah. caused crash in the first place. So the financial classes were the ones who orchestrated the catastrophe, and it was ordinary people that had the imposition of the cost of that thrust upon them. And the term authoritarian in this context doesn't necessarily mean in a kind of political sense, because obviously there were still elections and they were voted into power, but it means how these policies were implemented. So sanctions for welfare, like, you know, more than doubled, very punitive approach to public services. And the whole idea to to recoup, obviously, debt was to cut back services. So communities that were already decimated then had their healthcare systems gutted, their community centers, pools, leisure centers gone. So any aspects of community and society were torn asunder. Um, and then, of course, rising from that ferment was the Brexit vote. So I think, I think you've got these kind of three epochs that we can look at. We can look at the damage done during the Thatcher years, and we can look at the, the 2008 financial crisis and the kind of response to that. Yeah. And, and, and then we've got Brexit, obviously, which really was was taking advantage of the legitimate frustration and and sense of despair and of being left behind that existed outside of London. Yeah. Um, and and we and we and and fast forward to now and and you know you have a country that is quite literally decimated. I mean one 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 quote that I came across was describe Britain as impoverished, dangerously divided and viscerally confused. Um, and I think that that really kind of sums up, unfortunately, where we're at with these, these, this progressive detachment of conservatism from reality and this progressive detachment manifesting now as a party totally devoid of serving the public interest. Yeah. And you've got people, well, that, that's why we've got 
had Liz Truss. Like she, she right. was, she was, the boss she, was wanted, she wanted to be Thatcher, right? Like she really, yeah. really wanted to be Thatcher. You got someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg now saying like the Victorian times is the best for workers' rights. Like you want to <laughs> throw things back to there. And I don't know if you've seen this, but there was a documentary on Jacob Rees-Mogg. Yeah, the French one. He's the, like, <laughs> that guy needs to go and have an argument like playing football because because he was sheltered in a different way from that kind of conflict he just needed a hug <laughs> yeah you know I'm 50 a, pounds to invest yeah a friend of mine here is a clinical psychologist and she says that's what happens when you that's that's why they're all maladjusted right uh-huh. sitting there reading the financial times with his dad in a blazer aged 11 and it's like someone give that boy like 50 pence to go to the shops and kick a ball yeah Watch like some firecrackers or like go and get yeah. in trouble or something. Just the bill. Yeah. Not not great. It seems like we are heading into a real period of 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 change. And I know that you can't intuit change as from feelings in the air, but I kind of do feel something in the air that globally there is a shift on the horizon. And this is happening all over. There's there's far right winning in Sweden. You've mm-hmm. got like an ex-dictator's son in in charge in the Philippines, and then got this complete mess happening in the UK. Yeah, sounds so, like a call for nihilism, Alan. If I'm honest, <laughs> yeah. What's interesting is Ireland's probably going to go to kind of the 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 left on on the kind of populist spectrum with a party called Sinn Fein, but um, the the rise the rise of right wing populism quote unquote i think is um explainable when we look at things through the lens of the increasing inequalities in society yeah we also factor in um the wider effects of globalization of industry and otherwise and so so you got you have this sense in large segments of different populations that there is a kind of an elite political and social level in their countries that is interested in their own self-pursuit and interest in their accumulation of wealth, that the system, so to speak, is rigged in favor certainly of corporate accumulation of wealth. And these are not illegitimate grievances. These are legitimate grievances. And then when you add in that sense of kind of external threat to way of life, um, then you've got this combination of factors that are really fertile ground for populist rhetoric. Um, but I, I, and I, and I think that that's really what we're seeing, certainly in a European context with the rise of populism. But the, but the one thing that I think a lot of liberal commentators really get wrong is this assumption that what populists kind of movements are after is, you know, an authoritarian kind of quote fascist. I think that word is just getting used and yeah, it's lost meaning out of context that it's lost meaning. But if you actually really scrutinize, even with things like the Brexit vote, it's not less democracy people want, populist movements want, it's more. A huge component of the rise of populism is the sense that people's fortunes and lives are dictated to by unaccountable bureaucracies 
the European Union being one example, and that played out obviously in the Brexit vote. But even here, you know, the, this this sense of the political elite being being unaccountable to an electorate, the mm-hmm. sense of decision making affecting people's lives having no recourse. So it's it's actually if we really look at it, it's 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 more democracy that people want, not less. And I think that that is getting is getting lost in in all of this, and perhaps a way to consider kind of quenching the 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 kind of rise of 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 right wing populism would actually be to have a conversation about having more d- democracy. Um, Switzerland is a really good uh, provides a really good example of this kind of direct democracy where if they're making any sort of policy change, everyone votes on it. Yeah. Um, and so, so I think there's some really, I think there are some ways that this could be disarmed if you're providing people with more, a sense of more control over the trajectory of their country and of the decisions yeah. made. And ultimately what this is about is more accountability for the people making decisions. And the biggest problem right now is we basically have zero. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but for the odd you know, general election every five years, I mean, if we look at all of these changes of leadership and the conservatives we're talking about, or even their policies, they're not even re- representative of, of their voter base. No. So there's a, just a total lack of accountability there. And I think that's a big part of why, Pete, why we're seeing this rise. Um, but it is a worrying trend. Yeah, for sure. I am. Um... I really appreciate your wisdom on on politics. It's been nice to sit and listen to that, but I'm just very wary of of time. And I have one one thing I'd like to squeeze out from you just before I, I let you go, which is your, your favorite book this year. If... Ooh, mm. um, it depends. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> it depends. Um, so. You can go for three, I you can go for five, actually, you can go for as many as you like. Re-read, I reread a book that I first read in, in college, actually. Um, and I'm, I, I've reread, I'm nearly finished rereading it now. And I don't know if for people that are interested in American history, particularly the history of kind of immigration in America, it's a book called Strangers in the Land. Um, yeah. And it's basically about the period over from kind of 1870 to around the kind of, you know, first world war, um, and the trends in, in immigration and how that was responded to in America. I mean, anyone that's ever seen gangs in New York, it's kind yeah, of yeah. a little bit of this, you know, you've got okay. the nativist movement and its response to particularly what was happening at that time was a lot of Southern European Catholic immigration. Um, you had this very this wave of kind of nativist anti-Catholic sentiments and stuff. And it's just, it's a fantastically written book, a really, really rich history. Um, so I think I would put that top of the list. Um, and then another book that I read that I've almost recommended, particularly to all of my female friends, is a book called Girlhood by Melissa Phoebus. Um, And she's a writer. This is basically a book about her own experiences of basically being being a woman in the world uh, but it touches on a lot of themes of of objectification of 
physical, emotional boundaries of her own experiences with both physical and sexual abuse. I think for a, for, for a guy, I found it a very, very hard hitting, hard hitting book, but also her writing is just incredible. It's, it's, it's visceral. It's, it's very evocative. Um, so it's, yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed it. Okay. I'm going to put that both on my list. Well, been into literature. I'll just ask for one fiction book then. Um, so again, <laughs> yeah, I know I, one is an awful number, but no, no, it's it's fine. Um, so so I'm gonna. I mean, typically, I think we obviously we have a recency bias um, mm-hmm. with books and with you know fiction in particular. You know, God, the, the high watermark of the last two decades really seems to be Harry Potter. I'm not necessarily <laughs> not knocking it, but. I again went back um, and and reread earlier in the year uh, a book that I did in college that fits into the kind of romanticist era of writers, and I think it's fantastic. So it's a book called The Italian by Anne Radcliffe. Um, it was written in seventeen seventy odd, give or take. Wow. Um, but it, for people that are interested in this kind of like gothic type of fiction you know it's set in italy it's all you know kind of priests in 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 kind of black cloaks and mystery and kidnapping and it's i i i love that period of writing for its kind of portrayal of of the world generally but i i also i just think it's a fantastic novel nice well thank you very much Alan. i really appreciate um those i'll check them out and i'll um get them in the description for people who are listening as well uh but where where could people find you should should they be thirsty for more alan flanagan right now uh so on instagram is the uh, like i don't have twitter or any other accounts just more so for my own sanity so that's the nutritional underscore advocate um and yet they can find me there and then obviously my the sub stack is 3am thoughts um if they kind of like that stuff a bit more um and then the nutrition stuff they'll just obviously find then through my through my social media what an enlightening conversation that was i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did thanks again for listening you absolute legends take it easy love you bye Oh, and obviously there's loads of cool stuff in the description. You know that.